On this episode of AvTalk, the Air Current Editor-in-Chief John Ostrow joins us to discuss the investigation into the crash of Lion Air 610 and the attention now being paid to Boeing's Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System on the 737 MAX. We also discuss Airbus's plans for future aircraft development and the many incidents that have occurred over the past two weeks. From Aristana's loss of control incident in Lisbon to the runway overruns in Halifax and Georgetown. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Urbanowitz. Hello, Ian. Hello, Jason. And a a, a happy pre-Thanksgiving to you. Thank you. And you too. And we're recording this in like the the middle of the day, which is odd for us. It's new for us. Yeah, Yeah, it's great. It's not like the middle of the night. I have energy. It's, It's nice change. We should do this more often. I'm here for you. Yeah. So, happy pre-Thanksgiving to you. Happy day after Thanksgiving to all of our uh, U.S.-based listeners listening to this on Friday. I hope if post-Thanksgiving shopping is your thing, you are taking us with you in the car or or in your earbuds as you wrestle someone for a a television or or something. Remember, the more you punch and shove, the better the deals. Okay. Yep. There you go. That's true. So, I think saying it's been a busy two weeks would be the biggest understatement of our short podcasting career. Yeah, we were just running through the list of stuff we want to talk about and we kept forgetting about major, major stuff that's happened because it feels like it's been an eternity. Yeah, the the past two weeks have been a long year. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Let's start off with what we're going to get to later in the show, which is we'll have John Ostrow joining us, the editor-in-chief of The Air Current, who is going to dig into what's happening with the Lion Air investigation and some of the things that are happening with the, the Boeing 737 MAX and some Airbus news that came out just prior to us recording. So that will be a packed segment, but that's later in the show. Let's start off with what happened basically right after the last podcast came out, which was two weeks ago, the the Sunday following our our previous episode, there was a a major incident in Lisbon that featured an Aristana Embraer E-190. And Jason, you were were following this pretty closely and, and live, so I'll let you lead us in. Yeah, I just happened to catch some tweets early on about an Aristana E-190 that was having some technical issues outside of Lisbon. It actually didn't depart from Lisbon, the commercial passenger airport. It left from a different airport in Lisbon where it was there for several weeks for, I believe, a heavy maintenance check. And when it departed Lisbon to head back to to Kazakhstan, it had some extremely severe flight control issues. They had pretty much no roll control. They were having pitch issues. The flight path that we could see live on Flight Radar 24, even though this aircraft was tracked with MLAT instead of true ADSB, was nothing short of absolutely stunning. And at the same time, people were listening live on uh, live ATC. And almost immediately, these pilots decided this was such a bad situation that they wanted to ditch the aircraft out in the sea outside of Lisbon. And if pilots are discussing ditching the aircraft in, in water because the flight control issues are so severe. I can't even imagine what they were thinking in the flight deck. But thankfully, after about an hour of some pretty harrowing gripping of the aircraft to try to get it under control, they they eventually did. And I think it took them three attempts to land an airport. Yeah, three, about, three landing attempts. At, yeah, at, 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 uh, 60 or 100 miles southeast of Lisbon. Uh, they had some bad weather. 
that was in the mix to add into an already bad situation. They had some, I don't think it was uh, Eurofighters, but I think it might have been F-16s. It was uh, two F-16s. Yeah. F-16s that were on their wing trying to talk them through it to help them uh, guide them to the nearest airport because they kept asking for a heading to the sea over and over and over and over, but they couldn't maintain any particular heading. So every time they asked for it, the air traffic control said, it's heading 230, 60 miles, that'll get you to the sea, but they couldn't ever actually maintain a heading. But thankfully, eventually, they were able to figure out, I guess, the the play between the flight controls and and reality, what they what they were entering into the flight controls and what it was actually doing, and regain just enough control to land the aircraft. It wasn't a wasn't a pretty landing. It was pretty off center, but I mean, they did a hell of a job getting it back on the ground. And now we just have to kind of wait to see what the hell happened to that aircraft. Yeah, I mean the the initial kind of report from the Portuguese authorities rode through the narrative of, of what was happening, and and they were finally able to to kind of gain control when they when they reverted the flight controls to direct law. So basically, you know, the inputs that the pilots were inputting were were what the flight control services were doing, versus having you know some some fly by wire assist to help them, or in this case, you know, hinder their activities. And once they figured out to not roll the airplane to very much or at all they were able to to kind of bring things bring things in for a, a safe landing but then the report obviously pointed to you know th- this was an airplane coming out it was a ferry flight back to Kazakhstan via Belarus I, I think and so they you know they obviously pointed to this as an airplane coming out of maintenance and so we're going to look closely at what maintenance was performed and and what happened prevent these types of things from ever happening again but the the yeah, the, the flight track was just astounding and like you mentioned it's it's tracked by MLAT so we are calculating the position of the aircraft based on you know having the radio signal from from the transponder reach multiple receivers in the area and and so it's not as it's a bit janky. Yeah, because we need four receivers to calculate a position. And so if, if four receivers don't see the aircraft, that signal from the aircraft, we can't calculate a position. So we're, we're basically calculating positions as often as we can, trying as much as we can, but then there, there's straight lines kind of drawn in between on, on the flight path. And that can lead to kind of spaghettiization right. uh, of the flight path. And I am not an expert in Embraer E-190 flight control systems, but to the best of my knowledge, the E-190 is a fly-by-wire aircraft with the exception of the ailerons, which would, to my knowledge, control the role of the aircraft, right? Well, I mean, yes. I don't know the exact fly-by-wire, but the the ailerons, yes. So, I don't know. They also said that they were trying cross commands. So, basically, going right to go left going left to go right, going down to go up, th- things like that. So, so, so it, it obviously would, something was not maintained. Yeah, it'd be difficult to in, imagine in this being way. a computer issue. If, if the ailerons in the E-190 are not controlled fly-by-wire, they're controlled by old school cable. Yeah, I mean, basically, you make a maneuver with the yoke and it pulls a cable. So, Something must have gone very, very wrong in the maintenance of this aircraft. Yeah, I mean, it definitely. I feel like we should just record this and insert the audio every time we have to say it. But definitely, something we'll be following and waiting for the report. I mean, we needed some sort of running tally for all of these reports, and we're yeah, going to get to a couple more incidents. A lot. 
Yeah, we'll bring them to you as as they come up, and they yeah. they take a while, so don't hold your breath. That that's actually a good idea. Maybe a like a, a tally on the blog or something that we can link to in the show notes. What terrible um, thing are we waiting for an update on today? Yeah, right. In equally bad news, because no one was seriously injured, a seven four seven was off the run, uh, overran the runway on landing in Halifax last Ooh, week. Somebody was injured. A seven four seven was mortally well, wounded. A seven four seven was mortally wounded. It is now no longer a seven forty seven. It's beer cans. It is on its way to beer cans. It was not a pretty sight. No, and they were landing in some pretty heavy crosswind situations, I believe. And uh, they didn't stop, but the runway did. And uh, yeah, they they ran out of <laughs> runway, ran down the embankment, took out the the ILS tower, and came pretty close to exiting the airport proper. They were close enough to a perimeter fence that you could walk up to the perimeter fence and take some very good photos of the aircraft. Available on Jet Photos. Available on JetPhotos.com. Yes. So yeah, but no, it was it was one of those things where the, the funniest thing is I I started working for for Flight Radar and. One of the first times that I went over to Stockholm to visit the home office, I landed in Stockholm and turned on my phone and connected to Wi-Fi. And the Air Canada crash had, had like just happened in uh, Halifax. In, the in Halifax, yeah. Oh, that was the, bad. The too, yeah. yeah, it, it, it like just happened. I was like, "Well, oh, this is you know." I'm, Starting starting this new job, working for for Flight Radar twenty four, and and all of a sudden I'm like, well, you know, thrown into the deep end as far as you know the, these things go. But you know, we'll we'll wait for the report to see why. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about why they why they chose to land on the runway that they did, and and you know, given the weather conditions and things like that. But of course, we'll wait to to see what the report says and if the weather was in fact you know an issue at all. The the aircraft was empty; it was coming from Chicago. It's operated by Sky. And they go to Halifax from Chicago empty and pick up basically a 747 full of seafood, lobsters, etc. And then fly that to Anchorage and refuel and then fly that to China. It was like a dedicated route with this dedicated plane. And, and so it was, you know, the, they were flying empty from Chicago. So that that may or may not have been, you know, a factor there. But uh, there were you know, tons of lobsters that didn't didn't go anywhere that yeah, night. Somewhere in China, there's going to be a, a city devoid of lobster. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's weird to think. I'm like, yeah, yeah, there, there's a bunch of restaurants in China going, okay, now, so now what do we do? <laughs> so, our lobsters never left Halifax. Hmm. Speaking of runway overruns. Really? Yes. Yeah. Air Jamaica, a 757 that – this is a small airline that you may have never heard before. Air Jamaica, they run between Kingston and New York JFK and Toronto pretty much exclusively, I think. They, they service JFK exclusively itself for a number of years. The aircraft departed, I believe it was Kingston, had a hydraulic failure of some sort. Almost immediately, they turned back, did some circling to troubleshoot the issue came into land and uh, another case of the runway stopped, but the aircraft did not stop. This was not Kingston. No? No, this was, oh dear. Oh, Ian, come on. Can't correct me and not know the answer. <laughs> we'll come back to it later in the show. But I want, I want to say that it, it was Georgetown, but we'll- Oh, uh, um, yeah, you're right. It's Georgetown. Yep. So, there's back into my notes. But in any case, yeah, the 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 aircraft went off the end of the runway and came you know pretty close to coming down an embankment at the end of the runway. So that was uh, 
This uh, 757 really just ran between two JFK and Toronto, and it was one of their only two aircraft. So they had one 757 and a 767. Now to fill the gap, they're leasing all sorts of weird things like a uh, whatever version of Eastern were up to 767-200 has appeared at JFK a couple times recently. Is that the Eastern that was dynamic? It, it is the Eastern that was dynamic that bought the last Eastern. Okay. Got it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's confusing and stupid. We'll, we'll have a flow chart in the show notes. <laughs> we might need it. Yeah, I'm telling you. Yeah, there's going to be like nine, I mean, nine iterations of Eastern later. I mean, it's going to be. I got to think that everyone that restarts the brand Eastern thinks this time though. Yeah. So it's like, it's like, uh, it's like Charlie Brown in the football. Yeah, know? pretty much. <laughs> oh, they've got Eastern now. This They're time to though, go. it's going to work. Let's do one more bit of tragic news and then we'll we'll move on from from this portion of the program. Yesterday, uh, on the 20th of November, a man was struck and killed by a departing 737 in Moscow. The aircraft was departing uh, Moscow, an Aeroflot 737 was departing Moscow for Athens, Greece, and struck the man while it was departing. Various reports have said the aircraft was taxiing or, or actually departing on the runway. Still trying to, to pin that one down, but that's pretty crazy. And pretty awful. I mean, like I, all sorts of things had to have gone wrong for, yeah, for that to really happen. Yeah, not really sure what happened there, but it's not super unheard of for uh, people who shouldn't be on the airport grounds on the airport grounds. I mean, it happens in New York every now and then. Perimeter breaches happen and people wander where they're not supposed to and sometimes they get hurt. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we'll follow this one if only for the, you know, just to try and understand what happened, and and the the seven three seven departed. It departed. It, it flew to Greece. So I mean, you know, they they didn't see anything wrong with the aircraft when they were when they were leaving. So I'm still unsure what happened, but I, I felt like we needed to just bring it up to to keep an eye on it. Let's take a break now for a quick moment, and then we'll bring in John so that we can talk about Line Air and some Airbus news and get a sense on where the investigation of the Lion Air crash is and, and what Boeing's doing as far as the 737 MAX is concerned. So stick with us. We'll be back with John Ostro in, in just a moment. And we are back and joined by John Ostrauer, Editor-in-Chief of the Digital Aerospace Publication, The Air Current. John, welcome back to the program. Welcome back, John. Thank you, guys. Always good to be with you. So we've asked you here today because you have, as you, I don't want to say always do, because I'm sure there's something that you haven't completely immersed yourself in in the aerospace world somewhere out there, but almost always do. You've been on top of, inside, outside this story, following the Lion Air crash in Indonesia and the various things that have happened since then regarding the 737 MAX. And we wanted to kind of start with some of the initial investigation into the crash, discuss what investigators are looking at, and then kind of pull back out and, and see how that relates to some things that are happening with the 737 MAX now. So thanks for taking your time to join us in maybe walk us through a, a bit of what's happening. If you could, let's start with what some of the initial investigation is focusing on or perhaps pointing to with regards to Flight 610. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so th- this whole situation has evolved very significantly over the last three weeks. I mean, it, what started off as a lot of discussion around maintenance or pilot error after the, the October 29th crash off the coast of Jakarta really has become a discussion around the MAX itself. Boeing's re-engined uh, single aisle, uh, which entered service in 2017. And so the way this has evolved really kind of today, I'll kind of work backwards here, focuses on what's called MCAS. And MCAS is the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System. And that's a, that's a mouthful. But effectively what it is, is a system that Boeing added for the MAX to account for some changes in the size of its engines. Essentially, that at very high angles of attack, because the engines are, are bigger uh, to be more fuel efficient, they're moved forward slightly. And at high angles of attack, when the nose is pointed really high, they'll actually generate a little bit of a, additional lift. So it'll knock the nose a little bit higher. So if the computer senses that the angle of attack is too high, it will drive the horizontal tailplane to trim itself down, to point itself in a direction that forces the nose of the airplane down. And that system is is really at the center of the investigation now because investigators believe that there was erroneous data feeding to the angle of attack system in the MAX that caused the system to activate uh, at the wrong time. In this particular case, they believe that it, it, it may have contributed to the loss of control of Flight 610, causing it to crash. The point of controversy here is whether or not pilots had been informed and in turn adequately trained on the system itself. Let me just interrupt and ask a question for people who aren't as familiar with this. This is a system that is new to the 737 MAX specifically. It, it, it's never been a part of the 737 from the classics to the NGs previously. This was something that was added new. Precisely. Exactly. It is a uh, brand new flight control nudge, if you will, where, you know, effectively Boeing designed it as an additional protection because the way that the MAX was designed caused essentially the nose to bump up higher than expected and really required the pilot to be more on top of that. So they gave this aid to the pilot to essentially drop the nose down. And in the way it's been described to pilots at at major airlines around the world who learned about this just recently is that you really shouldn't even see it in operation because number one, you're not going to be in an unsafe situation flying by hand with your flaps up and your nose that high. And even if you do see it in operation, you won't even know it's there because it'll just help you recover. And because once the angle of attack, once the, the angle of the, of the, the wing through the air drops to a, a safe angle, the system will deactivate. The system won't, won't do anything else. You will have recovered and you'll just fly right on. So but the yeah, problem it is, here it is unique with the was that the angle of attack sensor was malfunctioning, we think, and it just simply never thought it was recovering. Is that really what the, the idea is? That is sort of the read between the lines of what Indonesian investigators have come up with so far. They certainly believe, based on the data that came off of the, the, the black box, uh, they've only recovered the flight data recorder, not the voice recorder as of November 21st. So they only have that to go on at the moment. So we don't know what actually went on between the interplay between the crew, but we do know that there was erroneous data being fed to the angle of attack sensor, which was the trigger for forcing the nose of the aircraft down. There's a whole procedure that is built around what happens when the pilots believe that the trim system on the airplane which is designed to keep it stable at various speeds, what happens if that runs away on them? 
and they have a you know the ability to disable the electric control of it and take manual control. But but right now it very much is the the center of this as they believe that the system may have been triggered essentially with a with erroneous data. And would there have been any notification in the flight deck? Because I've I've read I think it was the New York Times that had this breakdown where um they basically just have to use the, the thumb control to to um, nullify out the the trim and then cut off the automatic trim power like you said. But would they have any way to know that MCAS was even active, or could they think that just they're in this random dive and they have really no idea what is causing that, so they would have no idea how to counteract it? Well. That's a point of point of debate right now in terms of uh, how pilots have been trained to handle what they believe to be abnormal behavior of the trim system. So it's really a question of whether or not, you know, it's a question of was there enough information? Were they even aware that this even existed? And Lion Air says that their pilots were just learning about this for the first time with this resulting crash. So were, you know, American and Southwest as well, uh, just to give a sense of comparison here. But within that, there is no notification on the on the flight deck. I mean, the Max again is an updated version of the NG, and which in the NG is an updated version of the Classic, and the Classic is an updated version of the original quote unquote two hundred Advanced, which is an updated version of the of the original one hundred. So you know, you see the, you know these multiple generations of development for the for the seven thirty seven over time, and the one thing that that pilots who fly the seven thirty seven, you know do remark on is that it doesn't have the same type of notification system, the an ICAST, the, it's the engine indication and crew alerting system that a 777 or a 787 or even a 767 has today, where, where you've got a more of a detailed breakdown of individual indications and faults and so on and so forth. There is a little bit more in the max because of the new display technology, but it does not significantly differ by design from the earlier models because to keep it common, uh, common type rating to make sure the pilots who fly an NG in the morning can fly a max in the afternoon. That's still very much built into the design of the airplane. There's actually a, just to get a little farther into the weeds, there's a little, little kind of indicator panel, which essentially has lights indicating what the problem is with a general system on the airplane. And the, the name of that escapes me at the moment, but it's you know pretty much eye level on the, on the dashboard and will you know flash up, you know, you have a electric problem or a flight controls problem or a, or some other indication, but it doesn't give the kind of detailed, you know, system by system breakdown that we see in uh, aircraft that, that other aircraft that Boeing and also Airbus have produced in the last about 25, 30 years. So you alluded to the the kind of debate about whether or not pilots were informed about this. Boeing has said that, you know, we've told people about this. Pilots are saying we didn't know about it. So there's got to be something going on here. And, and Boeing in, in the past couple of days had scheduled a conference call with MAX operators. That conference call was put off and now various outlets reporting regional meetings are taking place next week. So what is Boeing doing to, to kind of explain this system and explain what, what it does? Well, I think it, it goes beyond just explaining the system. I think there's, there's very much a, a sense among operators that they need to know what they don't know currently or didn't know previously. Is this, I mean, I think it was, I think it was a report in the Seattle Times, which quoted as a, a pilot as saying, well, what else don't I know about my airplane? And that speaks to essentially a, you know, a fracture of the trust between man and machine or pilot and, and airplane. And so 
within that, I think, you know, what Boeing is doing is, you know, as much a, a customer reassurance as it is a, a rebuilding of, of the, the trust that's sort of definitely been, been well bruised by, by this episode. Because to have a system that augments how the airplane behaves, especially in, you know, abnormal, potentially unsafe situations, and not to have shared that, at least from a knowledge base, not necessarily, you know, additional training, but just, just have awareness of its existence certainly has caused a, a great deal of consternation. And that conference call certainly was designed to answer all the, all the questions that all operators had at once. So everyone got to hear what everyone else was thinking. Obviously, that's really hard to do when you've got a, an, a customer base as large as, as Boeing does globally. And, you know, if it's going to be, 2 p.m. somewhere in the world. It's going to be 2 a.m. somewhere in the world, uh, somewhere else in the world, and that's really hard to find a time necessarily to find everyone to get up in the middle of the night and or middle of the day to to hop on a conference call. So, from a Boeing perspective, or or from a, a an operators of Boeing perspective, I mean, you mentioned that they're looking for you know what else don't I know uh, about my about the airplane that that I'm buying from you, and. Some asked if if there's you know additional things that they need to know about this particular system about the systems in general. Is this something that normally would this type of system be something that a manufacturer, be it Boeing, Airbus, Bombardier, whoever, is this the type of thing that would normally be communicated to operators when they're purchasing the aircraft? That's a great question. I can't say definitively one way or another. I, certainly, differences training and differences certification is a huge part of of the development of, of any derivative, you know, understanding what's changed, what's not changed and to, you know, provide a, a level of, you know, transparent communication around that. The one thing that, that strikes me about this is that, that over the last decade, there's been several high profile loss of control incidents. You know, you look at, at what happened with AirAsia over the Java Sea back in, uh, I believe it was 2014. You look at uh, Air France 447, you look at other situations, you know, look what with um, loss of control on the the, the Fly Dubai crash uh, several years ago as well. You know, among both airlines of all different stripes and for with all different manufacturers, that there is a commonality here, and that's a, that's this ongoing loss of control problem, where pilots are getting tripped up by whether it's automation or something else, and the airplane is they lose control. So as the industry has had this conversation about loss of control and how to remedy that, Boeing establishes a system for the MAX that theoretically helps to alleviate that. Fundamentally, that's what it's there for. It's to, it's to prevent loss of control of the airplane, to prevent a stall, to return the airplane to you know straight and level flight, to reduce the angle of attack, to make sure this wing doesn't stall. But it's not well communicated, you know, and that and that's not my assessment. That's literally the the, the assessment of its biggest customers, American Southwest and, and Lion Air. And so a lot of what happens next for Boeing and for regulators and for airlines is to understand, okay, number one, why wasn't this communicated? And if it wasn't communicated, if it was communicated, why didn't it make its way to the pilots? If it was communicated to the pilots, why wasn't it trained on? And these are going to be a sequence that we see kind of how this unfolds. But I mean, with all the focus on, on upset prevention and keeping control of the airplane, Adding a system that helps with that and not telling anyone doesn't do any, anyone any good. So, Ben, I haven't seen any airlines say we're not going to fly the MAX. So this is obviously an area of concern, but it's not an area of concern such that they're going to stop flying. And so now that they know about this system, I mean, are, 
are there trainings ongoing either from Boeing or or from an airline's perspective that say, okay, now that we, you know, we really need to, to get everybody trained up on this as quickly as possible? Do you know if that's happening at all? Well, certainly they, they've amended uh, training manuals just to make sure the pilots are at a minimum aware of it. And Boeing has sent bulletins to the airlines. And also there's other airworthiness. There's the FAA airworthiness directive, which is, which essentially said, reinforce the training for runaway trim situations. So that's sort of the regulatory manufacturer airline approach to it. If there's anything else that comes out beyond this, that's going to certainly kind of wait and see. I mean, the one, the one question I think a lot of folks are, are wondering about is, you know, is a, is a change like this going to require additional simulator time, whether it's initial training or recurrent training? That could be an expensive lift in terms of what it takes to transition a pilot from one, one plane to another, because, you know, time in the box, so to speak, is expensive. And there's the, they get paid overtime in many cases for that, for the training time, whether or not out flying the line. So, you know, and pilots and airlines ultimately want to keep the transition cost as low as humanly possible for the economics of running your business. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in terms of what the requirement might be if you are an airline that is transitioning pilots and, you know, if you're, again, your max operator, you know, how you go from here. But like you said, there, there really hasn't been any change in terms of any, how anyone's been flying the max, uh, Lion Air very much included in that since, since the accident. So I want to transition now from the, the future of one large airframer to the future of another. We're sitting here recording on uh, the 21st of November, Wednesday, and just out today is some information about what Airbus is thinking for the future. And and John, since we have you, I wanted to take advantage uh, of your knowledge and expertise and kind of dig into this just a little bit. Jason, if you want to kind of get this one kicked off. Yeah. So just a few minutes before we started recording, Bloomberg put out an article titled Airbus Reveals Plans for All New Narrow Body and Re-Engined A350. So basically, they're thinking beyond the A320, beyond possibly the A220, which is still weird to say, and already re-engining the A350. And to me, in my brain, I'm still trying to process that, that we're already thinking about the next narrow body while Airbus is still admittedly trying to figure out how to make the engines on the A320neo work reliably. And who better to speak to in the world than John Ostrauer? Because while we're thinking on one playing field, he's in another universe completely. So, John, what do you make of this already? Do you guys know the acronym FUD? Hmm. Enlighten us. Okay. The acronym FUD stands for fear, uncertainty, and doubt. <laughs> it's I a, like where you're going a, with this. Yeah, it's a great shorthand for, you know, the psychological, bit of psychological warfare that gets played. And so, first glance, this looks like a massive FUD grenade thrown at Boeing. Because Boeing is on the verge of of launching the NMA. I mean, we, you know, the, the, the I reported on the process here. I mean, you're, where they're going to get final engine bids from Pratt Rolls and CFM at the end of December. They're going to pick an engine in February. They're going to do get board approval to start making deals in March. And then they're then come, you know, the Paris Air Show, we're going to see a launch of a of of a new commercial airplane. Very defined progression here. And so Boeing is saying, okay, we know where we're going. And all of a sudden you see over here, over, you know, you know, the, the, the shiny object going, Hey, we're going to re-engine the 350 and we're going to, you know, boost the range of the 321 and, and we're going to do an all new single aisle at the end of the decade. 
And if, if you're not, you know, rock solid on where, on where, where, you know, you're thinking about where you're headed in terms of your product development, if you're Boeing, you're like, Oh my God, do I need to think about re-engineering the 87 now? If, if do I need to, uh, you know, think about additional R and D spending that has nothing to do with the NMA or, you know, what they may do on, on, uh, updating, uh, not rather not updating, rather replacing the 737 late next decade. So it's, it, it is a very, it's, you know, look, I, you put something out like this. And it's kind of meant to be seen. So airframers do this all the time. You know, they'll also, they'll, they'll go in, in, in closed door meetings and they will, you know, talk about a product that has no intention of ever, ever coming to the fore, just to gauge a customer's interest. But, you know, it's out there and it, and it finds its way into the ether and, you know, people try and figure out what's real and what's not. And that's part of this magnificently fascinating game in the, in the psychological and fight that goes on between you know these industrial powerhouses. So it almost feels to me like Airbus is giving Boeing the final nudge that it needs to really give its stamp of approval to the middle of the market aircraft that we all know that they're going to do. But is this reactionary on Airbus's part or is it kind of proactive, do you think? Well, it, it's funny. I was going back and looking at some notes from – a long time ago, uh, I asked, I remember asking Tom Enders, so outgoing CEO of Airbus uh, at the Paris day of the Paris air show. And, and I, and I said, I asked him, I said, Tom, you, you know, you've got this notional plan in, in the distance to replace the, the A320 between 25 and 2025 and 2030. And you're working on the A320 Neo now you know, what do you do between here and there? Should, should we take this as such that, that there's going to be an A330 Neo? This was June 2011. Three years later, 330 Neo shows up very much in the same, same strategy as they developed the 320. So, you know, he talked about, you know, this, this roadmap that he didn't want to talk about in detail for obvious reasons, but essentially would focus on aerodynamics, would focus on computer systems, would focus on uh, engines and, and kind of rolling that out and doing that in a way that incrementally improves uh, its products for the most benefit over the long term. So in a lot of respects, Airbus has shown their cards. They've shown their cards over going backwards, looking at their history, and, and it's going to mirror what they do going forward. This is not some it's, – it's as much psychological warfare in terms of trying to throw, throw Boeing off the scent potentially, but at the same time, it also fits in their strategy. There's no surprises in, in, in this disclosure, which says we're going to see an A321 XLR for 2023. We know that, that that's almost certainly going to happen, probably going to launch next year, right alongside the NMA. What they do in mid-decade, you know, you're you're probably going to get a you know Rolls Royce, uh, presuming that they you know will continue their rebound from you know recovering from eight seven issues, that they will ultimately have some new iteration on on the Ultra Fan that can fit under the wing of a three fifty, and I'm sure they would be more than happy to to supply that to Airbus come mid next decade. So you know. The bottom line is there is going to be an update to the 350. Will it be mid mid next decade, 25, 26? I'm not, it's not clear. But, you know, right now, again, Airbus's strategy points all in this direction. And none of this ultimately should surprise anyone. But certainly the timing is certainly designed to, it looks like, to throw off Boeing and, and kind of where they think they need to put their dollars over the next decade. 
Yeah, I guess what surprised me so much about already starting to think about the replacement for the A320 is that they're still developing the A320. They haven't even really rolled out fully to any airline customer yet the A320 airspace cabin. I think that is being taken by JetBlue either in 2019 or 2020. So the latest iteration, and I think the the biggest jump so far with the A320 is since the cabin is still very 80s chic on the inside, they're not even done moving forward with the A320 and we're already thinking about its replacement? Well, the A320 has obviously been around since 80, 87. So by the time any 320 replacement shows up, the airplane itself will be 40 years old. And so you think of the, the basic airframe, continually updated. It's very, you know, different systems. It's not the same airplane that it was in, you know, when Princess Di and, and, and Prince Charles christened it at the, uh, at the rollout in the late 80s. So a lot's changed since then. But uh, at the same time, that's always, you know, Airbus has been rather consistent in terms of thinking about their their timeline. You know, if you talk about rates of between, you know, 70, 80 a month, you know, a backlog of 5,000 airplanes can get can get chewed up over a long period of time. But, you know, by the end of next decade, yeah, it's going to be, they're going to be ready for something new. And ultimately, what that is, what, what that new thing is, is a different type of propulsion or a different or a, or a significantly improved version of the engines that are available today that maybe require a different configuration or shape of the aircraft that really kind of challenges the economics versus the 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 neo but again airbus is going to be hard pressed to find major improvements to the the 320 between here and there. I mean, I think, you know, it would not surprise me at all. And, you know, kind of to do a, a brief historical analogy here, the first, you know, 7,000 A320s roughly were sort of the original generation, right? The, the, it's the CFM 56 IE engine. And then they go to what looks a lot like the Boeing classic, the 737, 300, 400, 500, where you've got the same wing, a slightly modified fuselage, but ultimately a different engine to to derive a lot of your fuel efficiency improvement. And then the third generation is the big update. It's the new wing. It's the new engine. It's the new cockpit. It's the new systems. It's the new cabin. It's the new virtually everything. But again, maintaining the commonality. That was the 737NG. We saw that in 97. So Airbus right now is only only on the second generation. And I think to your point, they're just getting started on the NEO. So the question is, you know, 15 years from now, which by the way, you know, pushes us to the end of next decade, well, actually into the 2030s, but let's say 12, you know, anywhere between 10 and 12 years from now, you're probably going to see, you know, a new composite wing on the 320, maybe make it a little bit longer, you know, to give a little bit more room to the, to the Airbus line. So sorry, the Airbus 220 line rather, and look at the C-series room to grow. So the question is, is it necessarily an all new airplane or just again, that next incremental evolution of an all new airplane at the end of the decade. And it could be, you know, it's the, you know, the A320 NG, Hey, you know, 2020s are going to be a lot more interesting than I think people thought they were going to be. Well, John, in our discussion before recording, we were talking about how there's a small, well, I don't small or large kind of political element to this Airbus news. And I was hoping that you could expand yeah, on that. The, a little it's, bit. It, the funny thing about the job listing, and I don't think it's subtle, is that they're seeking engineers and designers in Spain and France. They were not seeking them in the UK. So there is a, a bit of a Brexit subtext 
to this as far as the, the, the future availability of opportunity for the UK and its own aerospace industry. So I would have to believe that it's aimed as, as, as much at Boeing as it is at Brexit and what that means for, for the future of Airbus and, and, and how they plan to, to move forward with or without a UK contribution. So there's no shortage of news this week, and and I'm glad we were able to have you on. John Ostrauer, the editor-in-chief of the digital aerospace publication, The Air Current, thank you so much for joining us once again. Always great to be with you guys. Thanks. John, thank you for your time. My pleasure. And we are back always good to talk with John to to kind of see his understanding of the issue because it's always much more nuanced and in-depth than anything that I have possibly even considered. Yeah. Just when you think you are finally starting to understand a topic, he throws in, oh, this is also a Brexit play and you're just really didn't even think of that. I wasn't really there for that yet, but but he's on it. And the 737 MAX issues, obviously, it will be very interesting to see how things progress next week after these regional meetings that, that Boeing is setting up with various 737 MAX customers who are understandably quite quite upset with, uh, with the airframer. So we'll be, I'm sure, talking about that in our next episode as well. Let's talk about some good things that happened this week, or at least some milestones that are are bittersweet in, in a certain way. Virgin Orbit performed their first captive carry flight with their rocket launcher one underneath their uh, their seven four seven four hundred. So that was pretty cool, and they released some really good video of it. So that that was pretty cool to to see, and, and it's one of those you know. The, the idea behind it is it's easier to launch a rocket into launch small satellites into space if we get a, a flying start. Uh, so we'll, we'll fly up to 35,000 feet and launch the rocket from there instead of launching it, you know, just from the ground. So that'll be cool to see once they, you know, actually get some tests going. Other 747 news, the oldest flying 747-100 flew for the last time this week. GE's GE Aviation's flying test bed, the the original 747 flying test bed, flew from California to Tucson, Arizona, to to go to the Pima Air and Space Museum. So bittersweet there. It's no longer going to fly, but it did fly, and you'll be able to go see it. So uh, I'm really looking forward to what they do with with that particular yeah, aircraft. So this aircraft went to uh, Pima Air Space Museum out in Arizona which has really beefed up its fleet recently because I believe they also just took delivery of uh, the first ever Boeing 777. So they have got uh, a hell of a collection since the last time I visited. And do they have a, a 787 as well? They do. Yeah. I, I number, oh, I forget which number it is. But one of, one of the very early build uh, 787s is out there as well. And and some some great military stuff, um, you know, all sorts of stuff. And, and they've really been adding to their collection. Yeah. So the um, last time I was there, they only uh, had a 737, I think a 400. Now they've got a seven four uh, seven. They had a seven three seven four hundred, and they have a seven four seven one hundred, a seven eight eight, a seven seven three hundred, or is it a three hundred R? The triple seven? Well, it's the two hundred. Oh, the, it's the two hundred. Yeah, that's right. It's the well, first it's seven. The, so it's two hundred. So they've got a ton more than when I visited. It may even warrant a, a revisit. 
I, I think it might, especially uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do with uh, 747 GE, which it was deli- originally delivered to, to Pan Am in 1970, one of the early deliveries that then went on. In not bittersweet news, Jason. Yeah. Speaking of old aircraft, Allegiant is uh, finally, finally, finally retiring the last of its MD-80s coming up in just a couple of weeks, actually, not even a couple of weeks, about a week from now, November 28th. I The last I checked is their last MD-80 flight out of Las Vegas to Fresno. Las Vegas to Fresno. Yes, back. we did this last time. Yes, we did. Yeah, we did cover this last time, didn't we? But it, it's coming up. It's, it's uh, still coming up. You know, it's, it's still it's coming. Here. It's still a thing. But I'm just glad that they're, they're gone. The 787th 787 is built, painted, and almost ready to go home to China Southern Airlines. That registration is B-1168. So, get ready to, to track that one. And it's got a special 787th 787 paint scheme. That'll be fun to yeah, see. It's, it's not just a little sticker. They did it right. So, I took it upon myself to see what the 788th and 789th 787s are. And would you believe it if Boeing lined it up that line number 788 is a 789 and line number 789 is a 7810? I, I want to feel like they didn't really do that on purpose. But so well done, close. Boeing. So close. But well done, Boeing. Yeah, so close. Speaking of well done, Boeing, the 777X body joint is complete, the first one. Uh, so everything has been joined. That's right. That That's all I've got. Yep, it, ha- it has been joined. It will fly sometime next year, I think mid, early, mid next year. It's got its little foldable, retractable winglets all ready to go doesn't have engines on yet, but it is all, as you said, Ian, it is joined. Yeah. I think they're in a, a second or third round of testing of the 9X engine that GE is developing for the, the 777X, the, the flight testing on board the new 747-400 that GE is now using, 747, N747GF. They hopefully just incremented the registration, so it's easy to track there. What did Primera did something? Well, well, Primera won't have business. Right. Okay. <laughs> so Primera's not doing anything there. anymore. But we learned that the few 321 Neos that it did manage to take delivery of, some of them are going to tap. And for some reason, three of them are going to Alitalia. So from one bankrupt airline to another. Hey, hey, hey. Itali- Alitalia is not. Okay. Aren't they? So bankrupt? what's next? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the last thing we got here is the first 737-8200 is out on the flight line in Renton, which is the unique 200-passenger version of the 737 MAX 8 for, who do you think? Some sort of cargo company. Mm, self-loading cargo, known as there Ryanair. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, so, that, I, that's a thing. I don't begrudge Ryanair this configuration no. at all. I, no. I think no, no, no. that- I mean, when you fly Ryanair, you I mean, no one's flying Ryanair thinking it's Cathay Pacific first class. Like, I mean, or if you are, then we would like to talk to you for this podcast because yes, I feel would like, like that would be give a you very a interesting scan. interview. But I don't begrudge Ryanair. That said, I do not ever, no, 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 want to fly this airplane. No. So the the Boeing schematics have it down to twenty eight inch pitch, which I believe is a drop from their current seven three eight hundreds. And they're cramming on 200 people by basically just adding another door to the back of the plane. Yeah. I mean, it's just, 
the floor floor plan uh, seating seating plan that that we saw this week was just I mean if you look at it you're like there there are no aisles I don't know how people are going to get in there forever to get people on and off of this plane but is it really any different than a seven fifty seven three hundred which is equally ridiculous. No, I mean that. That's the thing. Well, and, and the thing is that, that Ryanair uses both. They they often use both doors to board and deplane the aircraft. So who knows if it'll take you know any longer than it takes a seven three seven eight hundred and you know at American or United or whoever. So it's interesting to see it kind of come together. I can't say I'm particularly excited about it, but you know that's their business model, and everybody knows that's their business model. It's like begrudging Spirit for not having great customer service. Hmm. Yeah, you're going to be unhappy with that result. I mean, you know, this is where we are, like it or not. Most people say they don't like it, but then most people complain about paying more for a ticket. So I mean, you know, you you can't. Pick your poison. You can't. Yeah, exactly. There you go. That that's exactly what you get. So that's we'll see it fly soon. It'll be interesting. It won't really look much different. But I doubt Ryanair is going to go out of its way to to publicize that they crammed two hundred people into that particular aircraft. We got that for them. <laughs> this was a busy episode. Yeah, we're we're done though. Let's stop now before anything else happens. Yeah, yeah. Before is there anything else we forgot? I don't know. We'll get to it next Probably. time. Probably. If we did podcast at fr24.com, we're always happy to have your your feedback and your ideas about things that we should talk about or or things that we should be looking into in the intervening two weeks. So to please do drop us a line there. If you find the podcast through iTunes, a, a rating and review is always very appreciated. It helps other people find the podcast and gives people an idea of what they're what they're going to hear because they trust our our listeners you know as much as they trust us to to provide them with some information about that so please do that and if you're finding this podcast and you haven't subscribed please do that too your subscription means that you get the podcast as soon as it's published and you don't have to wait to download it later on jason happy thanksgiving thank you you too i I wish you the best of turkey and cranberry and cornbread and all the good stuff I, and you as well, and, and I have to go to go take care of my turkey. Yes, but the, by the time people listen to this, the last thing they will want to think about is any of that. There you go. So we hope you, the listener, had an enjoyable holiday if you celebrate it or just a, a decent week, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.